All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, good. Turn to James chapter 4, if you would, okay, as we continue with this series of messages that I know that some of you today in particular are new to. James has been coming to us week after week and message by message, and he's been saying, real faith looks like this. Real faith looks like this. Hang on to that. You know, as I started looking at the passage for this morning, I I remembered again my fifth grade teacher who I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Her name was Mrs. Balliard, and I shared with you two weeks ago when we talked about the tongue that I have kind of a, well, a sharp tongue. And I have a big filter on it now that was not there when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, if I thought it, I said it. And usually it was funny, at least to me, and as long as I laughed, I didn't care if anybody else did, you know, and I'm still a little bit like that, but it made me disruptive in class, and so I was one of those kids, and everybody knows one of those kids, and a lot of you were one of those kids that always got the note home. Tom talks a lot in class. All the progress reports, all the, you know, all the report cards were, Tom is a really nice boy, but Tom talks a lot in class, and that was true in the fifth grade, too. And I shared with you one of the ways that Mrs. Bolliard tried to deal with that. And I know that it must have been premeditated because it was like she was waiting for me. And as soon as I started popping off, first thing in the morning, she invited me to her desk. And I thought, well, this is different. And so I walked over to her desk and she brought out a brand new whole roll of masking tape, which she then proceeded to wrap the entirety of my head with. No kidding. Like starting with my left cheek, she just went around and around and around and around and around. My eyes were still visible. My nose was sticking out. Everything else covered. And then she made me be the masking tape mummy all day long. So I was the masking tape mummy in my class. I was the masking tape mummy, by the way, in front of the whole elementary school for lunch. I was the masking tape mummy running around out on the playground, and just go with me on this. Masking tape does not breathe. I remember the sweat running down my face underneath this nasty tape. It was awful, frankly. And I couldn't wait to get it off. And I remember about two minutes before the end of the class, she called me up and I had my speech prepared because I did not want this lady to know that she had gotten to me. (laughs) So I knew what I was going to say. And I stood there at her desk while all the other students sort of lined up to get ready to be dismissed, to go out to the cars where their moms were waiting. And she started to tear this tape off and something unforeseen happened. I didn't realize, I mean, this stuff had been glued to my hair for like six hours and it actually hurt. Like she's ripping it off and hair is coming out. And I'm thinking, man, this is not like what I imagined it was going to be when it came off. I was looking forward to this until now. So finally she got it off and I mustered up what little bit of courage I had left to put on a show for her so that she wouldn't think she had gotten to me. And I smiled, you know, and like she had taken me to Disney World. And I said, Mrs. Bolliard, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this for me. And now that, you know, you've torn half my hair out, I don't need a haircut. So my parents are thankful too. You saved us money. And then I got in line and I was dismissed along with all the other kids. And I can vividly recall exactly where my mother was parked. And I just couldn't wait to get to the car because man, I held it together until then. I opened the door, I threw my stuff down in the floor, I got in the car, shut the door, sunk down in my seat, 
and just dissolved into tears. I mean, I'm 10, you know. It's, it had been a long and, frankly, kind of humiliating day. But to some degree, it was an effective day. Now, I certainly do not endorse the medieval type of discipline that was brought to me on that particular occasion. And I suspect that if Mrs. Bolliard was teaching today, it would go a little differently. I do. But you know what she was trying to do? She was trying to wake me up. And wake me up in such a way that it would then change the way I behaved. And I want you to remember that. You know, I realize as I look back on it this week that Mrs. Bolliard was... um, how should I say this, one of the more experienced teachers at the school when I finally made it up into her class, which is a different and kind of a nicer way of saying that she was one of the oldest teachers in the school. But keep in mind, keep in mind, I'm telling you this from the perspective of a 10-year-old. And when you're 10 and you encounter somebody who's, let's say, 35, you wonder whether they're going to make it to the end of the day. (laughs) So maybe she was 28, but I think, I think she was probably closer to about 58. And my point is that by the time that I made it into her fifth grade class, she had seen a thousand little boys exactly like me. This lady looked through me like you would look through a pane of glass. And then she strictly and directly, in fact, more strictly and directly addressed what she saw within me, both the positives and the negatives than any other teacher I ever had. And again, I will tell you, as I did a few weeks ago, this woman is my all-time favorite teacher. And not by a little bit. Why? Because I did, you know, I enjoyed getting away with nothing in her class. No, I lived to get away with things in class. That's what made class endurable for me. Because I enjoyed working harder for her. No, I'm 10. I'm a, I'm a boy. I hate to work. I like to play football. That's it. That's what life's about for me at that point. Because I enjoyed the masking tape. No, I, I just barely made it to the car, guys. Barely. And I think she might have known that. Mrs. Bolliard was my favorite teacher because she loved me enough, and I knew this, to do whatever it took and to say whatever she needed to say to help me to grow, to help me to develop, to help me to mature, to help me to reach my full potential, at least in that little season of life called fifth grade, in which God had given to her and entrusted to her my ear and also my heart. And the reason I thought about her this week is because that's James. That's him. James is the brother of Christ. James, as we've talked about, you know, fought with Jesus over the mashed potatoes at dinner. James wrestled around with him on the kitchen floor, okay? They went fishing together. He grew up with the Son of God. He saw him live. He saw him die. He saw him rise. And he's so convinced he's the Son of God that James himself gives his life. People miss those kinds of ideas. Why would someone die for something they knew to be a lie? Well, I think James was pretty convinced. He was an experienced follower of Christ, a man who was elevated and exalted by God and recognized by God's people in that first century church as a pillar of that church, one known for his piety, his knees like camels from praying so much pastor, a teacher, a counselor, there was very little that James had not seen. 
who is also enabled by the Holy Spirit and through the writings of this book to look through you and to look through me, well, like you would a pane of glass. And if you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. And then He has loved us enough to do what needs to be done and to say what needs to be said to help us to grow, to help us to develop, to help us to mature, to help us to reach our full potential for the glory of Christ. In this little season of time in which week by week and message by message, we've been coming to James, and God through James has had our ears. And I hope our hearts. And what I want you to know is that week by week and message by message, James has been driving us somewhere. And the somewhere that he's been driving us is a place called repentance. Today is the masking tape day in our relationship with James. Today is the day where he says, look, in light of all that we've talked about, hey, you know what? It's time to wake up. Today is the day when He brings us to the Savior, and He says, real faith repents of sin. And real repentance then shows up once you get back up off your knees and resume your life. Pulling out His whole roll of masking tape in James 4 verse 4, He says this, and I want you to notice the language, it's so important because it's different He comes to us today and He says, you adulterous people. Now stop there for a minute. That's a massive shift in language. All the way through this book, what has He called us? Brothers, beloved brothers, dearly beloved brothers. Totally different all of a sudden. When He came to you and I and He said, listen, as believers in Jesus, here's the deal. You need to suffer differently from the rest of the world. What did He call you? Brothers. When He came to you and said, listen, as believers in Jesus... You need to treat rich people and poor people differently than everyone else in the world who does not believe in Jesus does. What did He call you? Brothers. When He came to you with wealth and poverty and said, you must be different. Your lives must be different. Your words must be different. The wisdom by which you govern the entirety of your life needs desperately to be different. It's upside down from the wisdom of this world, but it's right side up, eternally from the perspective of God. Time and again He has come to us and He has called us brothers and dearly beloved brothers and beloved brothers and brothers in terms of endearment, terms of intimacy, familial terms, terms of family, and terms of love. And that ends today. Today He calls us something different. It's the wake-up call day where in light of all that he has said, he's saying, guys, if there is no difference between your life and the lives of everyone else out there in the world, then you desperately need to repent. You need to get down on your knees and confess your sins before the Lord And then get up off of your knees and by the power of Christ and for the glory of Christ, resume your life, but resume it differently. He says, you adulterous people, 
And then what's our adultery? He says, well, do you not know the friendship with the world is enmity with God? So there it is. It's friendship with the world. That's the spiritual adultery of which he speaks. Therefore, he goes on to say, in case we're missing it, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, makes himself an enemy of God. He's saying that's your choice. So if you suffer like the rest of the world, treat rich and poor like the rest of the world, view and use riches like the rest of the world, view poverty like the rest of the world, live like the rest of the world, speak like the rest of the world, like the rest of the world, and govern your life according to the wisdom of the rest of the world, he's saying, then you are committing spiritual adultery. From the perspective of the Lord your God, the true lover of your your soul, the one who has written his love to you in the blood of his precious Son, and who has withheld no good thing from you, you have chosen to unite yourself with the world in the most intimate, deeply painful, personally betraying kind of way possible. James comes to us, and I think he's crying, and I think he's in tears. I don't think he's yelling. I don't think he's being harsh. I think he's pleading for our souls. And he says, guys, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's like mathematical. You know, 2 plus 2 is 4, 4 plus 4 is 8, 8 plus 8 is 16. Friendship with the world is... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And then in case we're bad at math, he says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he says, makes himself an enemy of God, whom he will now tell us to the praise of our God. Well, then God is just not going to put up with that. Listen to what he says. He says, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says that he, God, yearns, hear this now, jealously over the spirit, he's talking about over the life that he has made to dwell in you, which if you think about it, is really startlingly, amazingly cool. He's saying, look, though you've scorned God, he doesn't scorn you. Though you've forsaken God, he hasn't forsaken you. Though you've rejected God, he hasn't rejected you. Though you've betrayed God, he has not betrayed you. Though you have turned your back and he has watched you leave, he has not turned his back on you. And in fact, He's waiting for you to turn your back now on the world and to come back in His direction, where He will receive you, not with anger and with wrath, but He will receive you with grace. He will receive you with love. You know, one of the most famous stories that Jesus, the blood brother of James, who wrestled, you know, in the kitchen with this guy... And from whom it is so obvious as you study this book that James gets so much of his teaching. One of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told is the story of the prodigal son. And look, I know that you all know it, but I want you to imagine it with me just for a minute. It's a story about a father. He has two sons. We're going to focus on the rebellious son. So it's a story about a father who is so obviously God in the story and a rebellious son who is maybe not so obviously you and I. But he is you and I. He is a picture of every one of us who in various aspects of our lives or maybe even in every aspect of our lives, either now or at other times in our lives, and maybe even in the future, which means we'll need to repent again and again and again and again, have turned our back on Him and walked out into the world 
We've chosen friendship with the world above friendship with God. He comes to his father, this rebellious son, and here's what he says because it's, it's kind of what we communicate as well. He says, look, dad, I'm really not interested in serving you. I'm not interested in living for you. I'm not interested in having a relationship with you. Truth be known, I'm not interested in you. But I'm really interested in what you have. I'm really interested in what you can do for me. I'm really interested in what you can give to me. I am way interested in how you, with all of your resources, can facilitate me. And I'm not willing to wait for you to die to get all that. So give me my inheritance now. You know what fascinates me about that little word, inheritance? In the Greek language, and I think this speaks to where we're at as a church right now, the journey that we're on, in the Greek language, the word actually means life. He's coming to the Father and he's saying, I want you to give me life. Why do I want you to give me life? Well, if you know the rest of the story, he wants him to give him life so that he can take that life and go and spend it on himself. He wants to leverage his life, to use the language we've been using, but for himself. And of course, you know the story, the father gives him his life, the life that he's looking for, the inheritance that he's asked for, and the son takes it and immediately he heads off to a far country that it's pretty clear, I think, that his heart has already been residing in for a long time. He's read the brochures in the far country. He's taken the virtual tours of the far country. He's had, you know, and watched all the video testimonials of the far countries. All of his buddies who are in the far country have been calling him and going, dude, you're going to love this place when you finally get here and you can't imagine and we get to do this and we get to do that. And this is what life is like in the far country. His heart has left for the far country long before all the rest of him does. And that, by the way, is oftentimes the way it works. Be careful where you go in your heart and watch this text because James will talk about our hearts. He heads off to the far country and gets there and the party is on at least until that stuff that we call money, which is biblically a form of life, runs out. And all the friends that he thought were his friends are gone. And that too is the way that it often works. You know, the world comes to us and promises light and then delivers darkness. The world comes to us and promises freedom and then delivers addiction and slavery. The world comes to us and promises satisfaction and fullness and leaves us starving, which is where this guy is left. It says that he longed to eat what the pigs that he had now started feeding We're eating until he has his aha moment, which sounds a little bit like repentance. It says that he woke up. What is James trying to get us to do in this book? What was Mrs. Bollier trying to get me to do with the medieval tape experience? This guy wakes up. Face down in the pigsty. And he realizes, you know, (laughs) I mean, even the servants in my father's house have it better than this. And he decides to turn his back on the world and to begin to journey home toward his father. There is a turning in repentance, guys. There is a leaving behind when it's real. And the only question left in the story is what kind of a reception is this guy going to get? We know what he deserves. What will he receive?
So if you know the story at this point, you know, the camera angle kind of shifts and and it shifts now to the dad. And where's the dad in the story? I'm going to tell you where he is. I know it doesn't say it exactly like this, but this is where he is. Trust me, I was there. He's on the roof of his house, okay? The roofs of the house in the first century were used as patios. There would be like a staircase up the side of the house, and they would go up onto the roof of the house. It was a place where they would go to cool off. It was a place where they would enjoy the breeze. It was a place where they would hang out as opposed to a stifling little box with no air conditioning. You get the idea? And it's also a great vantage point, is it not? From which to look down the road that you last saw your son on. Or maybe I should say it this way, from which to look down the road that you last saw the backside of your son on as he walked away from you. It's pretty clear dad's on the roof, and the father is looking down that road, and he's looking for his son. And as he looks down the road, he sees like this little tiny speck, you know? I mean, it's a person. Now, but he's seen people on the road before, so... That in and of itself isn't all that remarkable, but there is something different about this particular little speck, something remarkable, something familiar. And maybe it's the slope of his shoulders, maybe it's the way he holds his head, maybe it's the way he swings his arms, maybe it's the way he shuffles his feet. Every one of us has sort of a signature, which is the way that we move. It's the way that we walk. You can pick your kids out in a crowd even when you can't see their face. And he looks at this little speck and he thinks... Huh. Looks familiar. And his heart starts to beat about three beats faster. And that little tiny spark of hope that he's been carrying against all odds or so it seems grows to be about the size of a a match. And he trains his eye on that speck and it gets a little bit closer. And he thinks, wow, you know what? This is really starting to, you know, and now his heart's really starting to go, and the flame's getting a little bit bigger. And then he comes a little bit closer, and he's thinking, okay, look, if this isn't him, I'm going to be terrifically disappointed. It's got to be him. It certainly looks like him, and he gets just close enough for Dad to say, that's him. And he does something then that nobody else in that culture would do in that day. He, grabbed his, he grabs his long flowing robes, and he ties them off at the, at the thigh. It's called girding your loins. You've heard that. Now, why would no one do that? No self-respecting Middle Eastern man is going to bare his legs publicly. There is a nakedness involved in this story that is shameful. Our Lord hung naked on a cross, guys, bearing our reproach and all of our shame. That's involved in the coming home. So anyway, dad's like jacked and his heart's beating and his, you know, I mean, he's like, he's like, he's ready to go. So he rolls up his, his uh, robes and he ties them off at his thigh. And then he comes ripping down the staircase, tears the banister half off, just leaves it hanging. You know, he trips over a toy, does a flip in the middle of his yard, gets right back up on his feet, clears the white picket fence in the hedge by about two feet. He's like an Olympic sprinter. Very cool. He lands in the dusty street, starts sliding around while he's trying to orient himself toward his son. And here he comes running at his son, heart pounding, legs flying, lungs searing, tears pouring, and the son sees him. And he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, 
because he doesn't know what he's going to get. And by the way, he's been working on his spiel the whole way here. He started working on it at the pigsty when he started heading back. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to say when I get there, but I better figure it out. You know, I mean, he got out his three by five card and he's like writing it out. And it went something like this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I no longer deserve to be called your son. And I would be really happy with a bottom bunk in the servant's quarters. If you would just kind of do that for me, that would be totally cool. And I would be the hardest working servant that you'll ever have and the most thankful and appreciative in your whole, you know, stable of servants and, 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 and that. This son who's been practicing his speech is seeing dad, and dad is coming toward him with a passion. And he doesn't know what kind of passion. So I don't know. I mean, the way I imagine it, when dad gets about 150 feet out, the son sort of stops in the road and pulls out his three by five card and starts shouting, Hey, there's some things you need to know before you get here. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I don't no longer deserve to be called your son. And, and if you'll just give me a bottom bunk, and if you'll just... You can see it. What does he get? What do you get? It's shocking. Because it's not what he or we deserve. Luke 15, verse 20, Jesus tells us, he says, but while the son was still a long way off, he's just a speck, the father saw him, recognized him as the idea. And here is the heart of the father. It is not anger. It is not bitterness. It is not resentment. It is not rejection. It is, oh, he looks crummy. Good serves him right. I don't know why he's coming back here. I don't know what he can expect. I don't know what he thinks he's going to do around this place. He has shame. No. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And you've got to own that. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And I I envision him just taking him down like in a bear hug. Bam, right there in the middle of the street. Boom, just rolling around. Three by five card goes flying off in the air. Weeping and leaping. And says the son said to him, because he's been working on it. Father, you know, look, just let me find my card. Hang on a second. Okay, look, I've got a speech for you. Here we go. And it sounds like repentance. And it looks like repentance too. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Amen. That is owning it. And it's true. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Yep, that's right. You got it. And what does the father say? It says, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. The best robe. The best robe by which he will cover over all of his filth, all of the vestiges of his former life, all of the evidences and emblems of his friendship with the world. He covers him. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring, the emblem of sonship, on his hand in shoes and shoelessness. And that culture was a sign of abject poverty. If you had no shoes, you were as low as it goes. And apparently he was missing those. Put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf, the one that we've been saving. The very best one and kill it. And let us eat and let us celebrate 
For this my son was what? Dead. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And Jesus says, and they began to celebrate. There is a dying in true repentance where we recognize what we're doing is wrong and we say, I die to you. I die to my friendship with the world. I die to the desires that rise up within me. I die to this. But there also is a living. There is a resurrection that occurs as well. This is language of resurrection. My son was dead but now lives. As we are raised to live for Christ. Guys, James is coming to us on every page of this book, and he's saying, look, if you suffer like the rest of the world, treat the rich and poor like the rest of the world, view and use riches like the rest of the world, view poverty like the rest of the world, live like the rest of the world, speak like the rest of the world, govern your lives by the same wisdom as the rest of the world. If that's you, then you are a spiritual adulterer who has rejected God in the most intimate, deeply painful, personally betraying kind of way, and you need to repent. And when you do, this is the Father you come home to. In dying, you live. And so then James goes on to talk about what repentance looks like. He says this in verse 6. He says, but he, talking about God, gives more grace. That is to say, he's teaching us that repentance is the work of God's grace in our heart, that apart from God's grace, we're done. But indeed, God inspires our hearts, you see, and by grace, He empowers us to see our friendship with the world in all of its particularities. And He empowers us to turn away from the world and toward Him. We don't have the strength to do this on our own. God gives grace, He says. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Repentance requires humility. It is a humbling thing to look at the way that you have conducted your life, usually even for a long, long period of time, and to say, you know what? That is wrong. That looks like wisdom in the eyes of the world and foolishness in the eyes of God. And I need to choose. Choose that which is wisdom in the eyes of God. Repentance requires the kind of humility that says, okay, yeah, I suffer like everyone else, treat rich and poor like everyone else, treat riches and poverty like everyone else, live and speak like everyone else, and govern my life according to the wisdom, well, that everyone else uses as well. And that's wrong. And then James says this in verse 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. He's like, stop submitting yourselves to the things of the world and start submitting yourselves to the things of God. Start dying and laying things down that you might live and pick things up is the idea. In other words, real repentance is not us coming to God and saying, wow, God, you know, I'm really sorry that I got caught. It's coming to God and saying, you know what? I'm just really sorry. I'm I'm now seeing this and it's devastating to me. I'm wounded even as you are wounded over the way I've conducted and lived my life. I'm not sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I ever did it. 
And more than that, it's saying, look, when I get up off my knees, Lord, by your grace, because I'm going to need it, and maybe with the help of some Christian friends that I'm going to need to surround myself with, I'm going to do everything I can to stop doing it. James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But draw near to God. And what will God do? He'll gird up his loins. He'll come tearing off the roof. He'll leave the banister half hanging off. He'll trip, roll, clear the hedge. Heart pounding, lung searing, tears pouring. He'll close the gap. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you felt near to the Lord? You were close to Him. Because if it's been a while, then maybe you need to come home. Cleanse your hands, he says, you sinners. Your hands represent what you do. Clean up your life, you sinners, he's saying, and purify your hearts. Be careful of where you go in your hearts. Purify them. And then he says, you double-minded. He's saying, look at you. You can't face both ways. So pick it. Is it going to be the world or is it going to be the Lord? It's the masking tape moment. He's been driving to it for... Six weeks? Seven? And he's calling us to choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. The words of Joshua. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep over your sin. Let your laughter, which here refers to the laughter of the fool who lives his life for the world and thinks there will be no day of reckoning. That promising light, well, then that's what he's going to get. Promising freedom. Promising fullness. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he concludes this way. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and what will happen. And He will exalt you. In fact, He'll clothe you with the robe of the righteousness of Jesus. He will place the, frankly, undeserved ring of sonship or daughtership, if you will, upon your hand and mine. And he'll kill the fattened calf and strike up the band and show us what a truly abundant, joyful life even in the midst of this world can look like. So James has been driving us, you know, for six or seven weeks. And unless you were reading ahead, you didn't know exactly where. But now you do. He's been saying real faith looks like this and real faith looks like this and like this and like this and like this. It is manifestly, visibly, audibly, clearly different from the rest of the world. And today he's saying, and if that's not you, then real faith repents.
It repents. And in doing so, we're made new. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God, which You tell us is life. For the Spirit of God who inhabits us through faith in Christ and who comes to us on days and moments like this and makes them different. Who speaks to us, Lord, perhaps not in words, but in a language that is not unclear either. Who prompts and moves us to see things, to hear things, to feel things in accordance with your holiness and your good purposes in our hearts and lives. And who calls us not to trifle with following Christ. Not to compartmentalize it and treat it as though it's one part of a life that you do, you know, an hour a week or maybe two. To reckon with the reality that in coming to Christ, He claims the whole of us and calls us for His glory and for our joy to be manifestly different than the rest of the world. He enters into us and He transforms us progressively, ever more so, into the image of Christ Himself. He makes us more like Jesus. And Lord, He leads us to repentance, that we might here come home to a Father who welcomes us with open arms, who covers over our sin, and who makes us to feel secure in His family, and who allows us to eat at His table. We pray that for Your glory and our good, that that would be our experience this day. In Jesus' name, amen.